Last week I was hoping that we would get started on uh, John chapter 8. I wanted to come back and look at some of the ideas that came up in the course of going through chapter 7. And we ended up spending a little bit more time on those than I expected. And so we didn't quite make it into John chapter 8. But we're ready to start John chapter 8 this morning. We'll treat chapter 8 a little bit similarly. In chapter 7 we saw that ideas kind of come up again and again. And so we're not necessarily going to deal with everything as it comes up. We'll deal with some things as they come up, and then we'll come back to some of the ideas at the end of the chapter. Uh, so this is very much a continuation of John chapter 8. Remember, chapter divisions aren't part of the text of Scripture. They're just there as a convenience. And sometimes they're placed well. Sometimes they are a little bit of an interruption. And I think they're an interruption here. Uh, another issue is that there's very likely been an a textual insertion of the woman caught in adultery uh, between chapter 7 and 8, or at the beginning of chapter 8. And so the text flows, I think, more naturally if you simply don't read that. And that's how I'm choosing to approach the text of John. A lot of other pastors will, will, will treat that incident there because it probably is a real incident. It just wasn't part of John's composition. So in these chapters, Jesus is at the Feast of Booths. His teaching is going to focus really on who he is and what he offers to those who follow him. But maybe a more significant focus of those chapters is looking at how the crowds and the religious leaders are responding to Christ's claims and Christ's offer of salvation you know, for all that uh, trust in him. And to me, at least, these are some of the richest chapters in this part of the Gospel of John. They've also been probably some of the most challenging uh, chapters to study. If I had to guess what's going on. You know, these are, are probably very lengthy exchanges that probably took place over the course of hours. You know, ideas went back and forth, and John is trying to keep his presentation very succinct, and so he's condensing things as much as he can get away with with his audience and maybe more than he can get away with with modern audiences. He's expecting that we're going to really understand and pay attention to the context and think deeply about this. You know, he's expecting that a lot of the readers of his gospel are going to take the time to memorize this and have time to think through it and reflect it. That's not something modern readers typically do. But in the ancient world, if you, the, the vast majority of people would not be able to afford a text. And so if there was something that was important to you that you wanted to have access to, the most practical thing to do would be to memorize it. And so that would not be an uncommon thing uh, to occur. So that said, the, the, chapter 7 and 8 are also, in my opinion, some of the richest in John. I've really enjoyed them. And they're, they're very much worth the effort. So with, with all that said, we're going to go ahead and start uh, chapter 8 in verse 12. And we'll, we'll spend quite a bit of time on verse 12, and then we're, we'll move on and pick up the, the pace a little bit. So uh, verse 12, And again Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. One of the things that you see in John is very careful organization of the material. There are seven signs. There are seven I am statements. And this is the second of those seven I am statements. So you know, this is certainly something that we'll want to uh, pay a little bit of attention to when you see one of these I am statements. Just to remind you what the others are, the first I am statement we came to in chapter 6, this is 
right after the feeding of the 5,000 in the Bread of Life discourse when Jesus says, I am the Bread of Life. And that's kind of the high point of Jesus' teaching about what the sign of the feeding of the 5,000 is pointing to, our, our need to, to feed on Him and our need for Him to, to have life. So this is the second of the I am statements, I am the light of the world. We're going to come to several more in the next chapter, I am the door, I am the good shepherd. After the resurrection of Lazarus, or um, not after, I think before, Jesus says, I am the resurrection of the life. And then in the upper room uh, discourse, he says, I am the way and I am the vine. So those are the, the statements that we're going to be looking at. <clears throat> so thinking about uh, what Jesus means when he says, I am the light of the world, one thing that's always helpful to picture is what the original audience would have heard. And it's worth thinking about how life would have been different in the first century. For the last hundred years, our cities have been lit with electric lights. We've got lights throughout our houses. And you know, um, one of the things I've noticed, my, my family's been in Oregon for the last five weeks, and so I don't have this little lamp on in the hallway that Timothy insists that we have on all night, every night. And if I turn it off, he gets up and he's upset. So as soon as he left, it went off because <laughs> um, it was unnecessary. But it was kind of striking what a dark hallway was like when I haven't seen one for years. <laughs> um, the, the point that I'm making is that we don't really experience all that much darkness in day-to-day -day life. And, and modern civilization, that just doesn't come up very often. In the first century, it was dark outside. You really, it would have been unsafe to walk outside unless it was an area that you really knew would be free of obstacles because you just couldn't see. You know, some nights you'd have the moon and stars, some nights you wouldn't, and it would be extremely dark. There, there really wouldn't be any public lighting at all. Some people would kind of keep lights on in their, their homes for a while, and those would go out, and it would be dark. And uh, so the, the people that John is speaking to probably have a better sense of what real darkness is, just not knowing anything of the surroundings around you at all than, than we would today. So Jesus is using here the, the light that we rely on to see the world around us as a picture of part of what Jesus is to us. We need light to see, we're blind. We, we can't properly know God or our world or ourselves without revealed light from heaven. And that's, I think, what Jesus is claiming to be. One of the quotes I came across, this is probably one that most of you have heard before, but it, it's still worth repeating, that really helped me to see a, an important aspect of light is from C.S. Lewis. Uh, this is out of Mere Christianity, and C.S. Lewis says that, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. And what Lewis is saying there is, yes, you, know, you, you can actually see that the sun itself is there, but one of the important consequences of the sun being up and being able to see the world around us is that it makes sense. C.S. Lewis was an, was an atheist for you know, a good ch chunk of his uh, you know, early years. I, I, it was probably in his mid-20s that he was converted. Is that right, Tim? <laughs> um, but he, he spent a lot of years 
realizing that the world just didn't make sense. And you know, as he became a Christian and came to see the world from the perspective of biblical truth, what he recognized is that Christianity had to be true in part because suddenly the world would make sense in a way that it couldn't without the light of Christ. And I think that's an important thing that Jesus is getting at when he says that he's the light of the world. And so I'd like to look at a few very specific things that we really cannot understand without the light that's been provided by Jesus Christ. And the first of these that I've listed out would be God. We don't have a way of knowing who God is other than the ultimate self-disclosure that God has given us, which is you know, his son, Jesus Christ. And the, the prologue of, God, of John gets to that. We'll actually come back to that uh, hopefully later in today's study. Another thing, and this is what C.S. Lewis's quote in part was getting at, is that we really don't understand the human condition. People do realize that there's something wrong in the world, and there's constant efforts to fix it that usually just make things worse. We, we recognize something is wrong, and we can't come up with a way of getting the world to be the way that we instinctively know that it should be. It's with the light of Jesus Christ that we understand what that is, and more importantly, that we actually do see the solution, which is the gospel. Um, another thing would be the, the meaning behind what you, a secular person might say, life, the universe, and everything. Um, we, you know, as Christians, we understand that God created the world to display his glory, and we can make sense out of it from that perspective. Without it, you know, I think probably the, Douglas Adams' explanation that the meaning of life, the universe, and everything is 42 is probably you know, every bit as convincing as anything else that you're able to read without the light of Jesus Christ. Another thing that I uh, decided to list would be glory. We're, we're sensitive to glory to an extent that we, we see in creation, but it's never complete or it's never fulfilling. We, we do see perfect glory in what God what we see of God that's revealed through Jesus Christ. And I think that the ultimate revelation that we have of God's glory is Jesus Christ. In John chapter 6, one of the things that we spend a lot of time looking at was that John went out of his way to point out connections between the feeding of the 5,000 and the manna that uh, was part of the Exodus account. John was, was certainly looking to the Old Testament there. And so I, I think it's profitable to go back to the Exodus account and see if there are some connections that can be made. We, when we looked at living water, we, we can kind of get a general idea about what water from what we know about it as kind of a, an important source of uh, abundance of, of life in, in, a, in an arid climate in the first century at least. We also saw that that's almost certainly connected to an important part of the way that the Feast of Booths was ce celebrated, this water-pouring ritual. That looked back specifically to the provision of water from a rock that God stood on that was struck with the staff of judgment. And so, if Jesus is proclaiming himself to be the light of the world, a really good instinct would be to say, well, is there something in the Feast of Booths? Is there something in the Exodus that we could look to and see that? So I think the, the, the place to get started would be with how the Feast of Booths was celebrated, what it was like, and we actually have fairly detailed accounts from Josephus 
and uh, you know, other writings from roughly that time that, that give us an idea what, what went on in the celebration. An important part of the celebration was that two great lights in the temple were lit. And these were said to be, be so bright that they lit the entire city, which doesn't sound impressive to us. Our city is always lit every night. But in the first century, that would have been a, a very rare spectacle to, to have a light that's so bright that you'd be able to, to see the city at night uh, from, from any place in the city from one source of light. So this, this was definitely a, a big part of the feast. And we also know that these lights symbolized the cloud by day and the fire by night that was present during the Exodus. And so Jesus, we, we've, we've at least got reason to think that Jesus might be looking back to that. There's a, if you're interested in more detail, there's a sermon by James Boyce called The Cloud in the Desert that I'm really kind of trying to summarize here. And so Boyce does a better job of developing this than I'm going to, but uh, that's where this is coming from. So if, if Boyce is correct that you know, the, Jesus is just sort of talking about generic light in general, and I, I think we can look at generic light and we can see a lot that is profitable, but I think there's, there's a little bit more than that. I think Jesus really is specifically referring to the specific light, which would be the fire and the cloud that led Israel through the desert. What was the original purpose of the cloud or the pillar of fire in the Exodus? Um, what did the cloud do for Israel? And, and then how is Christ the spiritual fulfillment of that type that we see back in Exodus? The most important points, I'm not going to summarize every point that Boyce brought up, is that the cloud was a way that God communicated his presence with his people. They could tell that God was with them in a really unique and rather remarkable way simply by looking up into the sky. And they could do that in the daytime when they'd see a, 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 a very unusual cloud that would be there. They could do it at night when they'd see a pillar, pillar of fire, which would be even more remarkable to me at least. <clears throat> and for us, Jesus Christ is is kind of the ultimate fulfillment of that. By coming and, and dying to establish a ch church, what Jesus did tells us that God is uniquely present with us in a way that's every bit as real, I think, is what the Israelites experienced. We don't need to look to the sky, but we need to read and meditate on the person that Jesus Christ is to see that same thing. And it, in fact, I think Christ is actually a more real reminder of God's presence than a literal cloud or a little literal uh, pillar of fire would be. Another uh, aspect of that is that the cloud offered protection against God's, or protection for God's people. Uh, there, there's a, a point where the cloud blocks Pharaoh's army from being able to get to them until they're able to cross the Red Sea, for example. And it's possible that it would have offered some shade in very intense desert heat. That's something that we would think about but if you have ever been in a really hot desert, you, that's one of the things you'd be looking for. Um, and you know, Jesus is, is very much that protection for us. The, the price that he paid to redeem us ensures that we can be confident that God will protect us from spiritual harm. The cloud led God's people. When the cloud moved, the people followed. When the cloud settled and remained in a place, they, they stayed there. And that's what Jesus is for us. Jesus is the light that's leading us to the promised land through the wilderness. We follow Jesus uh, you know, in our wilderness wanderings that uh, 
uh, you know, the, the, the exodus is, is a type of, uh, and we, we can trust that, we, that Jesus will be there to lead us until you know, our, our salvation uh, comes to completion. There's another thing to consider. You know, having enough light to be able to do much at night would have been a rare treat in the ancient world. We, we talked about that a little bit with these pillars, or sorry, with these lights that would be lit in the temple, and people would be able to dance into the night and, and celebrate God's goodness to the nation that year. That, that was an important part of this feast. And I, I don't think it's a stretch to, to say that, you know, uh, that celebration would be otherwise impossible without light and that Jesus may well be pointing to how true celebration and joy are only possible with him. That might be a little bit of a stretch, but I think that, that's at least worth thinking about. But what I want to conclude with is that light exposes what darkness obscures. And so we can certainly see the religious leaders who are important figures in these chapters. They took great pride in their uh, very considerable efforts to obey the law and to study scripture and to generally make themselves look holier than thou. But what happens when authentic light shines near them? That authentic light shows that their self-righteousness actually is nothing more than filthy rags. It's beyond any human hope of repair. And we, we can go back to John 3, uh, 19 through 20 to, to see this stated earlier in the Gospel of John. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and the people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. And so there's two fundamental problems, just to try to summarize what we're, we're saying here about light. First, we live in a world that's dark without Jesus Christ. We're aware that the world isn't what it should be, but we don't have enough light to see what those fundamental problems really are. If we could see them, or sorry, if, since we can't see them, we're powerless to do anything about them. But with the light of Jesus Christ, we, we do see that the gospel is the, the solution to these problems. The second, Every one of us are actually part of that problem, and it's because of sin. The, the presence of true light exposes that sin. The natural human response is not to welcome light that, that shows the world for what it is because it shows us for who we are. But So a, a rational response to God incarnate coming into this world to provide light would be one of gratitude, and that's not the response that we're going to see as Jesus' teaching unfolds in this chapter. And so that takes us to verse 13. Oh, and I went ahead somehow, so verse 13 has been up there for a little bit. So the Pharisees said to him, you are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true, for I know where I came from and where I am going, but you do not know where I come from or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet, even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law, it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. They said to him, therefore, where is your father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come.
First, one thing that, that's helpful to know, and some of you are probably picking up on this, is that the Pharisees are looking back to a previous encounter with Jesus where Jesus recognizes that witnesses are required, in a legal sense at least, to confirm his claims. And so then Jesus provides uh, witnesses. He points to the, the, the Father, he points to John the Baptist, he points to the works, he points to the Scriptures. Jesus doesn't there concede um, that point. Instead, he claims that his testimony is true and it should be, ex or sorry, here Jesus is doing something a little bit different. He doesn't concede the point that he needs witnesses. Uh, he's going to argue that point where he didn't before. So he, um, he's going to claim that his testimony is true and should be accepted even the, in the absences, or sorry, even in the absence of witnesses. He could provide witnesses, and he's done that previously. That didn't work. But here he's going to uh, argue in a, a different fashion. So why is it that we should accept Jesus' testimony? And the answer that he gives, my testimony is true, for I know where I came from and where I am going. Uh, Josh, have you ever seen that used as a legal argument before? <laughs> um, and there, there's a good reason for that that we'll, we'll see as we unpack it. it. At first, though, it, it doesn't seem very <clears throat> compelling, but there, there's actually a lot to it. We've already seen that a at a very simple, literal level, the crowds and the religious leaders don't know where Jesus is from. They don't know where he's going. Um, and just, let me just read John 7.33. Um, Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we won't find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, you will seek me and not find me, and where I am, you cannot come? And we're actually going to be coming back to that passage a little bit later today, or I hope. So at, at a very simple level, there actually is confusion about where Jesus is and isn't from, but I don't think that's what John is getting at. At least that's not the main thing that he's getting at. John loves to work at multiple levels, and so I, he did intend for us to see it at this level, but I think he wants us to see it at a deeper level more uh, significantly. I think John is making a connection um, that, um, that's going to help us to understand this a little bit better. Um, even if they don't know these things about Jesus in a literal, literal sense, they really don't know these about Jesus in the far more important spiritual sense. If they don't even know where he actually, that he actually is from Bethlehem or understand what he's claiming uh, about soon returning to the Father, they're even more out of their depth when they need to understand his eternal origin at the Father's side or his eternal destiny to sit at the right hand of, uh, of God the Father. We could look to philosophy, and one of the great philosophical problems you know, through the ages is that the world simply does not have a way of answering where we come from or where we are going. The best science can do is point to a beginning that it might be able to describe, but it can't even begin to explain. And then it points to an end that renders everything that happened beforehand to be meaningless and completely pointless. The universe, given enough time, will run down to a point not only where life isn't possible anymore, but even a memory that life existed will eventually vanish. There's a, even a more substantial problem that is rarely seriously considered, but I think should be, 
And that's why anything should exist in the first place. You know, a universe that pops into existence isn't nearly as hard to fathom as why there's a set of rules that we would point to that we call the laws of physics that you govern the, the universe in a very specific way. And you know, the more that you look at these laws of physics, there are, are certain things about them that are, are simply there. You have to accept them. You know, physicists have reduced things down to, to six fundamental constants. You can't explain where the values of those constants come from. They're just there. Uh, you can measure them uh, to, to very good accuracy, but why they're this value, there's really no, no explanation for it. There's just something that you have to accept that it's the way the universe is. Um, if you try thought experiments where you change those values a little bit, the universe ceases to work, at least in a way that life would be at all possible. <clears throat> the, the, the laws of physics can be explained and described, but they, they can't, or they, they can be described, but they, they can't be explained. They, they simply are. And I don't think a, a way of trying to imagine how they might have originated ends up making any sense. The, the best attempt that is, is popular today is this idea of a multiverse, where there's a bunch of different universes with different laws of physics, and occasionally one actually happens to work for, uh, for uh, you know, having just the right set of laws that might allow life to, to, to work. And if you step back and think about it, just having to invent an infinite number of universes to make things work is rather preposterous, in my opinion at least. The, the point that I'm trying to make though is that without divine revelation, we really have no idea where we came from and we have no idea where we're going. But Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, is the only person who understood truly and fully where he comes from. As believers, we know something about where we're going, but we only know that because Jesus knows that perfectly and Jesus chose to disclose that to us. The next thing I'd like to look at, uh, verse, uh, let's see, uh, verse 15. Uh, there's a typo in my notes. You judge according to the, you judge according to the flesh, I judge no one. Yet, even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for it is not I alone who judge, but I am the Father who sent me. So at first glance, Jesus appears to be contradicting yourself, especially if you're familiar with other statements that we find in Scripture. We just go back to chapter 5, and we've already seen that you know, this discussion is looking back to, to that. And in chapter 5, verse 22, Jesus says, for the Father judges no one. He has given all judgment to the Son. There's a variety of ways of dealing with this, and I, I think the best one is to simply read that uh, what Jesus is saying is that I'm not judging right now. And one thing that you could point to that would make it obvious that Jesus isn't judging right now is that the religious leaders aren't a smoking pile of ash at that moment. <laughs> if, if he were judging, they would be. <laughs> um, you know, so Jesus isn't judging at that time, but he's earnestly trying to persuade those around him to turn to him for salvation. Judgment will come later, and Jesus will judge, but he's not judging now, and I, I think that's what the verses are getting at. So let me uh, try to turn to J.C. Ryle. Uh, he's offered a paraphrase of these verses that I, I think is getting at what they're, they're saying. 
I, I certainly found this helpful. So J.C. Ryle is saying that it, it appears intended, that this, this, this statement appears intended to remind the Jews that if our Lord did not assume the, the office of a judge now, it's not because he's not qualified. The sense is as follows. Do not, however, suppose, because I say I, do, I judge no man, that I am not qualified to judge. On the contrary, if I do pass judgment on any person's actions or opinions, my judgment is perfectly correct and trustworthy, for I am not alone. There is an inseparable union between me and the Father who sent me. When I judge, it is not I alone, but the Father that judges. Hence, therefore, my judgment is and must be trustworthy. and I got behind on my slides there. The, the next verse I want to look at, and by the way, if it feels like I haven't fully dealt with what Jesus is saying by, you know, I know where I come from and where I'm going, we're actually going to come back to that and de deal with it in a little bit more depth. But we need to get farther in this passage to be able to do that. At, at first, you, uh, you, this verse you know, I am the one that bears witness about myself and the Father who sent me bears witness about me looks very simple. It's just a, a similar restatement of his earlier defense back in chapter 5. But I really do think there's a lot more to this than, than just that. First of all, there, there's a little bit more to this if you look at it in, in the Greek. Again, going back to J.C. Ryle, let me uh, quote his commentary. The Greek words that begin the verse are very peculiar and can hardly be rendered in English. They almost bear to be translated, I, the great I am, am the person bearing witness about myself, and my father also bears witness. So there, there's a, evidently in the Greek at least, a pretty explicit claim to deity in that, and that's what I wanna really look at. Another commentator, I think, is, is getting at what Jesus is really saying here, which is very profound. Uh, this is Andrew Lincoln that I want to quote. The claim is he is so at one with God that his witness is self-authenticating. For by definition, God needs no one to validate God's testimony. And I want to unpack what Lincoln is, is saying in this quote. It, it's very profound. I also want to acknowledge where this is coming from. I included a uh, enough information that you can find a sermon that I listened to by a pastor named Mark Jenkins. It's called uh, Christ Our Light, I believe. So if, if you're interested in someone developing this a lot better than I'm about to, I, I would recommend that sermon to you. Isn't, the, isn't what Jesus is saying in a sense kind of circular th uh, reasoning? In other words, Jesus is claiming to be God. Since any statement from God, by definition, is true, it can't be doubted. But if we step back a little bit, it, uh, it's impossible to avoid circular reasoning at all in a, in a question like this. What could God appeal to other than himself? To appeal to anything else would then make that thing supreme. So if we were to appeal to human judgment, that would make human judgment supreme over God. God's testimony is valid because it comes from God. It isn't valid because humankind decides that it's valid. 
that's what is meant here by saying that it's self-authenticating. Let me go through two different examples of, of that. I'm going to start with Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, and that's one of the, the better-known musical compositions. It happens to be my favorite. I think if you were to you know, look at different people's consideration of what the greatest musical work of all time is, there, there wouldn't be many that would come up as often as, as Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, certainly. How is it that we know it's a great symphony? It certainly isn't because some pencil-necked music critic offers a list of 17 cri criteria and he calculates that Beethoven's Ninth gets a higher score in these criteria than Twinkle Twinkle Little Star or something. Um, we, we recognize that Beethoven's Ninth is a great piece of music because it's a great piece of music. Uh, you know, a, a music critic doesn't get to decide what a great piece of music is. Such a situation would elevate that you know, pencil-necked music critic above Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. And that's obviously as absurd, at least to anyone that can appreciate Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. Uh, a music critic determining that it's a great piece of music doesn't add to its greatness. It's a great and monumental symphony because it's a great and monumental symphony. Let's look at this from a, a different direction. You know, suppose that pencil-necked music, music critic instead trashes Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, calls it poorly crafted or simplistic or lacking depth or, 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 or something. Beethoven's Ninth Symphony is still a great symphony, regardless of what anyone says about it. Um, you know, and it will remain a great symphony. It will continue to awe people that experience it for centuries after that critic has been forgotten and after that review has been lost in the dust of history. Um, that critic would not end up judging Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. The symphony stands on its own, and in effect, it would judge the critic. Um, the music critic would be the one that's shown to be wrong, not the symphony. God is God because he is God. He's self-authenticating. He, he can't be anything else. We can't do anything uh, to his glory or to, to add to his glory if we recognize his glory, and we can't do anything to detract from his glory in the slightest degree by any effort of, of trying to not deny it. Uh, God, who he is, God's glory, th these things are self-apparent. We can either accept them or, or embrace them, or we can suppress the God that revealed the, these things to us in our own unrighteousness. Let me come at this with a different example. This one is actually from that sermon that I uh, quote in, in, the, in the notes. <clears throat> How does one consider the question of whether a light is on or not? You don't need witnesses. Light is self-authenticating. You see it. You don't need to seek external evidence for it. Examining Jesus Christ's claims with human judgment is simply wrong. First, human, uh, it puts human judgment above God, and that uh, is an obvious absurdity. God is God because he is God, not because we decide he's God. Using human reason, judging according to the flesh to determine whether he's God is like shining a tiny flashlight at a floodlight to see if it's on. If you want to know if a floodlight's on, you look. The floodlight is self-authenticating. At least it, it would be if you're not blind to begin with. So you might recall that last week we looked at different ideas that we saw from the crowd about who Jesus is. They, they sounded a lot like what you might hear today from unbelievers, your good teacher but being the most, in common, the most common and also the, at the same time the most impossible 
of, of these you know, possibilities for who Jesus Christ was. Liar and lunatic are other possibilities that we, we looked at. We spent a little bit of time looking at the logical reasons that these are far more difficult to accept logically and from what we know from history than simply to accept that Jesus Christ is who that he claimed to be. But I, I do think that there's a lot of value in, in looking at, at, at things this way. Um, I, I think there's a lot of value in seeing a, a solid logical basis for our faith. That's not what brings people to saving faith. And I, I can say that because unbelieving philosophers have learned logic and reason very well. They see the same facts and they choose not to believe. Human logic and human reason can't save anyone. Salvation is only possible when the spirit regenerates a heart, removing a heart of stone and replacing it with a heart of flesh. Or to use another analogy, when the spirit opens the eyes that were blind to sight. One will not recognize the, the magnificence of Beethoven's Ninth Symphony by reading books about it or listening to a Sunday school teacher's opinions about it. One will come to recognize it as truly, a truly great work of art by experiencing it, by listening to it. Similarly, Jesus Christ is revealed as God in Scripture in a way that is perfectly self-authenticating. We need the Spirit to open our eyes in order to see that, but seeing Him in His glory and perfection is how we come to believe. Saving faith isn't something that we can produce by trying harder to believe or by logical production, or sorry, by logical deduction. Saving faith is seeing Jesus Christ as Jesus Christ has revealed himself to be. The next verse I want to come to, uh, verse 19. They said to him, therefore, where is your father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. The question from the Jews probably is not one of serious inquiry. I think the best way to read this would be in a dismissive way. It probably carries meanings that would be something along the lines of, you know, if God really is your father, where is he? Have him come and testify, uh, expecting that that won't happen. And uh, thankfully for, for them, it, it did not. But uh, <clears throat> I, I think that this is the beginning of what's going to become increasingly hostile attacks on Jesus, specifically on Jesus' parentage as we look at uh, later in the chapter. We're not going to get that far this week. And so Jesus is going to be demonstrating in this section that the Jews trust in Abraham and uh, eventually will say that they, that, then that they trust in God as their uh, father. But that, that trust is misplaced, and that's the, the issue that we're kind of heading towards, and this is kind of a precursor of that. Jesus has stressed the unity between himself and God the Father. Here, he stresses it by saying that knowing one is equivalent to knowing the other. He also confronts the Jewish leaders over their unbelief. He is telling them in no uncertain terms that they do not know God. From a human perspective, this would be equivalent to a student uh, with no university training or no specialized training addressing the entire faculty of a prestigious seminary and telling them that they don't know who God is. Uh, but Jesus Christ is not an ordinary person. He's God incarnate. It's 
an astonishing claim that he's making, but it's one that's necessary for this group that is so confident in their works to hopefully be moved. And, and some of them were. We, we have good indication in the Gospel of John, for example, that Nicodemus probably did come to know Christ in a saving way. And he may not be alone. There may be other uh, people within this group where Jesus' message did get through and did penetrate their heart and they did come to know Jesus Christ in a saving way. Collectively, the, the vast majority of the group is gonna reject Jesus Christ, but that doesn't mean that this teaching isn't effective for some. It's important to pay attention to Jesus' close connection to the Father. They're so united in message and purpose that to recognize one is to recognize the other. Similarly, failure to see one means failure to see the other. Think back to John's statement in the opening verses of John chapter 18. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He, and it's clearly speaking of Jesus Christ there, so Jesus Christ has made him known. Jesus is the most perfect and the most complete and the most comprehensible communication about who God is that we will ever have in this life. And that may even hold in the next life that our, the, our best way of knowing God will remain through, through Jesus Christ. The only way not to see that is not to know anything about who God is in the first place, not to know God at all. And John's going to make that point increasingly clear as we continue in this chapter. Okay. I do not have enough time uh, to get into the next section, so that's, we'll, we'll pick up in verse 21 next time, but I do have time for a few questions. Okay. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you that you have given us such a bright light to show us who you are, and to show us your glory, to show us the, the, the love that you have for us. I pray, Lord, that we would be drawn to that light. I pray that we would, uh, this week, desire to understand you in a deeper way and that we would go to the revelation that you've given us in the scriptures and taste and see that you are good. In Jesus', Christ, in Jesus name, amen.